What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome back to my dining room. I've told you, with or without the pandemic, we had learned a lot during the pandemic about doing this show from indoors. Sometimes we get great guests, we have great topics, and it works better via Zoom. And we have been out back in restaurants. We'll return to them again. But this week, we have a very special guest, central to the most important news story in this country and quite possibly the most important news story around the world, the ongoing evacuation crisis of Americans and Afghan allies in the country of Afghanistan. Our guest is Craig Whitlock. He works for The Washington Post. He has a new book coming out. The interesting part about the release date of that book is the date itself, August 31st. That is supposed to be the date the last U.S. American forces, the last American forces, rather, in Afghanistan leave that country. The book is called The Afghanistan Papers. Craig, I know there's a subtitle to that book. Tell us what the subtitle is. Uh, It's The Afghanistan Papers, A Secret History of the War. A Secret History of the War. And the reason we have booked Craig Whitlock, ladies and gentlemen, is because The Afghanistan Papers appeared in The Washington Post in December of 2019 and did not in my opinion, received nearly the attention that they deserved. Certainly within the community of interested readers, they did, but the country writ large, it didn't. I include myself in that. I didn't pay enough attention to it. I feel somewhat professionally ashamed to admit that, but it's the truth. Craig, give my audience a sense of what the Afghanistan papers were. We'll dig into them topic by topic, but give them a broad overview. Sure. So the Afghanistan papers are a collection of Uh, notes and transcripts of hundreds of interviews that were conducted with uh, key policymakers in the war. This would include White House officials, generals, diplomats, aid workers who had served in Afghanistan uh, over 15 to 20 years, mostly during the Bush and Obama administration. The interviews were conducted by an obscure government agency called the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan. Uh, It's part of a program called Lessons Learned to try and figure out what went wrong in Afghanistan. But the interviews themselves were kept from the public. And once the Washington Post found out that they existed, uh, we sued the government twice in Freedom Information Act lawsuits to to get them made public. And it took us three years, but we finally did. And the top line conclusions therein? Well, really, the top line conclusion is that the line they were telling the public throughout the war for three presidential administrations that we were making progress, that victory was around the corner, that uh, nobody really believed that privately, that all these people who were in charge of the war or who played a role uh, were very pessimistic about where things going. Uh, they, they saw the war as unwinnable. 
Uh, so there is this real contrast between what people were saying publicly and what they were saying in these confidential interviews. Based Craig Whitlock of the Washington Post on what you read and reported then and what we're seeing now, are you in any way surprised? Not by the outcome. I mean, reading these documents, not only do you see historically uh, just how there, there wasn't a strategy, there weren't very clear objectives that uh, U.S. officials were really struggling uh, as far back as the Bush administration to figure out how do we get out of Afghanistan. And that's persisted for the better part of 20 years. And I think what we're seeing now is, is frankly, the, the final outcome of that. There was always this fear that the Afghan state, as we had created it and propped it up, would collapse, uh, that the Afghan army and police forces wouldn't fight or wouldn't be effective. And that's why the war dragged on as long as it did, because you know Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden we're all scared that things would fall apart. And it, you know, they frankly kicked the can down the road, but that's what we're seeing now. Have you ever been to Afghanistan as a correspondent, Craig? Uh, yes, many times. I was a foreign correspondent for the Post uh, soon after the war began. Uh, then I was our Pentagon correspondent, one of them for several years. So I've been covering the war since the beginning. So you know how to read between the lines or to call colloquially, BS on things that are said from podiums, either at the Pentagon, the State Department, or other official places of Washington articulation. Is there anything that you want our audience to know about what they're hearing about Afghanistan now that they should pierce through and read differently? Yeah, several things. So uh, one, this idea that the Pentagon, the White House, you know, were un you know, didn't know that this chaos could result that this, you know, this was beyond their control. You know, they were afraid that this could happen. And frankly, at the very end, they didn't plan very well for it. The other thing is that's remarkable about President Biden. You know, he was asked uh, a few weeks ago when the U.S. military was withdrawing, he, you know, he was specifically asked, could we see another Saigon moment here? The reference to uh, the evacuation of the U.S. Embassy in Vietnam in 1975 when we had helicopters desperately flying people off the roof. You know, he was asked, could that happen in Afghanistan? And Biden was very dismissive of it. He said, absolutely not. We're not going to see that. We're, we're making a responsible planned withdrawal here. So just a few weeks later, you know, the images we saw coming from the Kabul airport of the Afghans uh, running on the, the tarmac, trying to climb you know, up and down this giant C-17 U.S. Air Force transport plane. I mean, it, you know, frankly, that looks worse than what happened in Saigon. And even today, you know, this struggle of Afghans who had helped the United States trying to get to the airport to get a flight out of the country. I mean, this is the kind of thing Biden was asked about just a few weeks ago. He said it would never happen. And yet here we are. So the audio doesn't match the video, does it? Not at all. I think anybody can see that. And that means that for however many times at the State Department or the Pentagon or at the White House, they say we planned for this. Quite obviously, they didn't. You know, I think they made plans. The question is, were they substantial enough? Were they well thought out? Did they, you know, the Pentagon plans for everything, right? They've got plans on the book to invade Canada. And I'm not making that up. I mean, they've, <laughs> they've got plans for everything. Uh, but I think what's sort of baffling in this regard is this, this was foreseeable that whether the Taliban, you know, is going to take them a week to sweep through the country, maybe they, that caught people by surprise. But you know, they, they knew that it, a month was possible. You know, this had been reported or a few months. And regardless, at that point, there was going to be a real fear among Afghans who had helped the United States. They'd want to leave the country. 
Plus, you know, there's thousands of American citizens there. And why we weren't equipped in case things got bad, uh, it, you know, that's a hard question for the Pentagon and the White House to answer right now. And I want to help, help my audience understand, based on your expertise, as you've articulated, Craig, that at times like this or in times two months ago, what our government prioritizes and what it leans into is what it does. And what it doesn't prioritize, even if it says it's interested in it, is not happening. That's a truism, correct? I think that's right. And what was clear to me, because I have a lot of friends in the veteran community, I also have a lot of friends who work in the Afghan resettlement community who have been begging successive administrations, not just this one, to move more rapidly on the special immigrant visas for Afghan interpreters and others who assisted us in Afghanistan. And it was clear to me, Craig, after the president made the decision, President Biden, that we were withdrawing, that nothing was accelerated either on the identification process or the preparation process for those Afghan interpreters or assisters or Americans to swiftly get out of Afghanistan. And that just seems clear now. And what we have as a result is the American government essentially asking the Taliban for permission for us and our allies to leave. Yeah, I can't argue with any of that. I mean, even before the Taliban swept through the country and took over all these provincial capitals. You know, it had been well reported that this process to get special visas for interpreters and their families was just going really slowly. You know, the Pentagon, the White House said they were trying to negotiate with other countries, places that they could take these folks until they could get processed and, and the paperwork would, you know, would, was going to get sped up. And it just was moving at such a glacial pace. And you know, unfortunately, the, the State Department, the U.S. government has a real poor track record of this. We saw the same thing happen in Iraq to a different degree. There were people in Iraq who had helped us as interpreters, as support for our forces. You know, they were trying to get out and it just, you know, it, it would take years. Uh, and, I, you know, I think the bureaucracy didn't adapt. And but there also clearly wasn't a political priority placed on trying to protect those people and get them out. I think. In hindsight, you know, the Biden administration will admit, and I think the president has said, they were afraid of igniting this stampede that if right. the United States was seen as, you know, putting all these people on airplanes and taking them out of the country while the Afghan government was still in power, that this would panic the population. But they still didn't have the contingency in place when it became time when they said, OK, the Taliban's taking over. We got to move. Right. And as recently as this week, the president has essentially said there was not in so many words, there was going to be a stampede one day or another. It just was a question of when we'll pick up on that point and many others related to the Afghanistan papers written by Craig Whitlock and others of The Washington Post. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout in just a second. OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Back with our guest, Craig Whitlock of The Washington Post, author of the Afghanistan Papers, along with others at The Washington Post. And I want to drill into this for just a second, Craig, because it's really important. Because sometimes you have to force 
governments to release things that the public has a right to know. And this was a three-year costly legal battle. I don't want to go into chapter and verse on that, but just emphasize to my audience how important that was and why the Post made that decision. That's right. I mean, at that time, when we started digging into this, you know, it was the end of the Obama administration. Frankly, people weren't paying that much attention to Afghanistan. They're all uh, concentrating on the presidential election with Trump and Hillary. And, you know, Afghanistan was kind of this forgotten war that uh, the U.S. government had had tried to kind of hide what was going on there. It didn't want people paying attention because they knew there wasn't a lot of public support for it. But once we got wind of these papers and the documents and a sense of what they said, you know, we thought it was really important that government officials be held accountable for what happened in Afghanistan. But again, it all goes back to that basic question, what went wrong? You know, I, people obviously knew things weren't going well in Afghanistan. I mean, if you have a war that drags on for 20 years, by definition, it's not going very well, especially if it's a war that your country started. Uh, so I think to this day, people are, are trying to figure out what happened, not just in the past few weeks in Afghanistan, but you know, how did we get to this place over 20 years where the U.S. superpower, uh, despite this enormous effort with almost 800,000 U.S. troops went to Afghanistan over the years, many of them for multiple tours. Mm -hmm. How do we lose a war to a guerrilla outfit like the Taliban, which has this Stone Age ideology, uh, very little resources? You know, how do we lose that war and, and what did we get out of it and what was going on? And those are the questions that are really coming to the fore now. And it makes me doubly glad that we did go to those lengths to sue the government to get these documents because they do provide some answers. And Craig, I want to get your opinion on this. And maybe you won't be comfortable giving it, but I think the tone and tenor of your articles answer it. But I want to have it in your own words. Do you believe this was the U.S. government across administrations, Republican and Democrat, shading the truth or absolutely hiding it and therefore lying? I think there are multiple instances instances of each administration lying that they were just not just spinning not just putting on you know uh happy talk about what's going on but the documents make clear that they were lying and there was deception we, we see numbers of instances of this where they would say things publicly how great things were going and then in private there would be diplomatic correspondence there would be memos saying the complete opposite i'll give you a couple examples uh, you know, early on in the war in 2002, after it looked like we had won, after the Taliban was out of power, Al Qaeda had, you know, its leaders had either been killed, captured, or had vanished over to Pakistan. You know, Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, the defense secretary at the time, was asked repeatedly, you know, could the United States get stuck in a quagmire in Afghanistan? How long are we going to have to be there? And Rumsfeld was very, very dismissive of this. He'd, he'd mock reporters who bring up the word quagmire. But then there are memos in the Afghanistan papers that Rumsfeld dictated that show he really felt the opposite. He, there was one memo in 2002 he sent to several commanding generals at the Pentagon and his aide saying, we need a plan to get out of Afghanistan. Otherwise, we're going to get stuck there forever. And he ended the memo with the word help and an exclamation point. So this is the complete opposite of what he's saying in public. And you see example of this year after year throughout the war where you know, they're presenting this, this, these rosy statistics in public, but the memos and interviews show in private, you know, they didn't believe a word of it. And 
I think it's important to drill down a bit on this, Craig, as you said a moment ago, especially in a war that you launched. Now, there'll be those in my audience who will say, no, no, wait a minute. The Taliban gave safe haven to al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda launched the attacks on 9-11. It would have been impossible for the United States to not go to Afghanistan to hunt them down. Well, I think that's true to an extent, but if the Afghanistan papers are revealing in this sense that they talk to U.S. officials who were involved during the early years of the war who say, look, the original objective, the original mission was sound, right? You know, we got hit on September 11th. And justifiable. We needed to defend the country. We needed to go after al-Qaeda. And yes, the Taliban was hosting uh, al-Qaeda, so we needed to degrade their military capability. The problem was we we kind of got rid of al-Qaeda very quickly within six months, but then things shifted. You know, the Taliban kind of vanished in the hills for a bit, but once they started coming back, the insurgency started to gain steam in 2004, 2005, 2006. We essentially got embroiled in a civil war in Afghanistan. Uh, We weren't fighting al-Qaeda. We were fighting the Taliban and other insurgents who we didn't understand their motivations. We didn't really understand Afghan politics or, or tribal relations, but we were stuck in a, in a civil war. And that wasn't the original mission. That wasn't the original purpose of going to Afghanistan. But you know, we haven't been fighting al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in 19 years, yet we've been stuck there. And that's, that's the critical part of what, how things went wrong. And I'd like your insights on this question, Craig. Is it your conclusion or is it fairly concludable from the papers that the United States, even though it said it wasn't going to overpersonalize Osama bin Laden when we lost Osama bin Laden and those who were closest to him in Tora Bora and therefore didn't exact justice on him personally, that we stayed. And as we stayed, we had to keep creating a rationale for why we were staying. And until he was gotten, we couldn't end that idea that justice had been served. And by the time he was killed... We had been there so long that all these other rationales had developed and they carried forward. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, you know, we had Osama bin Laden was pinned down at Tora Bora in December 2001. And the Afghanistan papers addressed this, that uh, there were a number of military folks and CIA folks who wanted more forces to try and kill him there. Uh, you know, the U.S. at that point under General Tommy Franks, who was the Central Command commander, was reluctant to send many troops to Afghanistan. Uh, ironically, there was this fear of getting uh, getting stuck in a quagmire. So they we had a very light force there and missed an opportunity to get bin Laden. Doesn't mean it would have definitely happened. I mean, it was it was very difficult terrain. We didn't know exactly where he was, but we knew he was in the vicinity. But we missed an opportunity to get him then. And that if bin Laden had been killed then, that probably would have changed the the outcome, the course of the whole war. But as you point out, even after he was killed in Pakistan uh, 10 years later in 2011, you know, that was another another pivotal moment. It was, why are we still there? What are we hoping to accomplish? I mean, even President Biden has admitted this. He said, you know, after we got bin Laden, we haven't really accomplished anything in Afghanistan. And there are many people in the Afghanistan papers who admit, you know, that was the moment when the U.S. needed to really, you know, step back and say, why are we there still Let's get out of there. But, you know, we kind of 
thought you know there was hubris. We thought we could transform Afghanistan, and you know we, we didn't look for the exit at that point. So I'm going to set you up. I want you to begin this conversation, Craig, and we'll carry it on into segment three. I've got about a minute 30, so I'll jump in, but just start start working your way through this because I know it's a long and important answer. How much did the decision to invade Iraq in 2003 affect Afghanistan? No question. There's one memo uh, from Rumsfeld that really sums it up. In 2002, uh, Rumsfeld went to the Oval Office to meet with President Bush, and he says, do you want to have a meeting with General McNeil? And Bush said, who's General McNeil? And Rumsfeld said, he's the commander of your forces in Afghanistan. Bush says, well, I don't need to meet with him. And what that was is he was so preoccupied with planning for the invasion of Iraq, he didn't even know who his commander was in Afghanistan and didn't think it was necessary to talk with him. So I I think that answers your question right there. And we'll carry this more into segment three. But when you think about this idea of invasion, occupation, and some dimension of nation building, doing that in any one given place is difficult. Doing it in two places simultaneously, enormously difficult. And I think that's one of the threads that runs through the Afghanistan papers is it was a different conversation that was already waning by 2003. But by the time we were in Iraq, rather, Afghanistan had fallen completely off. And that is part of this overall observable truth about Afghanistan. Craig Wickelock is our special guest of The Washington Post, the author of the forthcoming book, The Afghanistan Papers, coming out August 31st. It's an important date to have on your calendar for many reasons. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout in just one second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. No better guest to have on the program this week than Craig Whitlock of The Washington Post, author of the Afghanistan Papers. So that was a little bit of a filibuster from me, Craig, and I'm not the one who should be doing that. But I was just getting us to break talking about what happened both atmospherically, tactically and on the ground once America cast its I don't want to say invader-like eyes on Iraq, but that's essentially what happened. And it seemed to me, and it seems that the papers reveal that Afghanistan became a secondary, if not tertiary, subject matter after that. Yeah, you see this time and again in the interviews we obtain. These are oral history interviews, transcripts of people, transcripts of interviews with people who served both from the military uh, and diplomats and aid workers, where they say, you know, after you know, frankly, after early 2002, it was really hard to get anybody's attention in Washington to figure out what to do with Afghanistan, because all of a sudden now we kind of were responsible for what was going on in that country. You know, we we had invaded, we had kicked al-Qaeda out, the Taliban was out of power, and now we were left with trying to figure out what to do with this destitute, shell-shocked country that had been at war for 20 years. Uh, But the problem was there was you know, again, this hubris, this idea that, well, look what we were able to do in Afghanistan. We got rid of these bad guys, the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Let's let's try and do the same thing in Iraq. And, you know, the Bush administration really just stopped paying attention to Afghanistan. Not only did it not have a plan, a strategy for the war at that point, but, you know, it really was reluctant to spend money trying to help the Afghans recover economically or to build up their government. And I covered this conversation also the Bush administration. And then when President Obama took office, 
there was a whole year-long study that went into a new approach to Afghanistan. And President Obama made all sorts of promises to the country about fighting corruption and sending military forces in there and that they wouldn't stay forever and that this was the best possible answer to a sense of drift in Afghanistan under the Bush administration. Yet that's not what actually happened. Some of it didn't, but the payoffs didn't. That's right. We, we went from one extreme to the other between Bush and Obama. You know, Bush is rightfully criticized for not devoting enough time and resources to Afghanistan, particularly in the early years of his term, in the early years of the war. Then Obama comes in, uh, you know, he had promised to end the war in Iraq and he was trying to wind that down. But, you know, he also promised to try and fix things in Afghanistan. So he took the opposite approach on the advice of generals at the Pentagon, which was to send way more troops, up to 100,000 troops, and spend billions and billions more dollars in Afghanistan. So we took the other extreme, but that didn't work either. We, you know, the Afghanistan papers clearly show that we flooded the country with so much money, so much aid, trying to build things up in such a short period of time uh, that Afghanistan couldn't possibly absorb it all. And that's where the corruption got worse. And we hear about the corrupt Afghan government, which is true, but you know, the United States was the one with the money. We gave them the money. So we were responsible uh, directly for a lot of that corruption. And Craig, this is a small part of the story, but I think it's an important one, which is to say that corruption was real, and yet it's not as if some Americans didn't benefit from it. There are lots of contractors upon which the Pentagon relies upon. And those contractors have not only political connections, they have financial interests, and those contractors always got paid, did they not? That's right. They always got paid. Sometimes they got paid a lot more than they should have, too. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of fraud uh, in U.S. military contracts with U.S. contractors, international contractors, Afghan contractors. A lot of people got, got wealthy off this war the longer it went on. And my point about that is not to say that they're necessarily evil, they very well might be. They might just be venal. But my point is that one of the things that sustains a status quo is everyone getting paid. I think that's a very fair observation. And everybody was getting paid for a long time. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, I think they saw business opportunities, right? I mean, the U.S. government was saying this is our strategy. You know, Obama wanted to surge into Afghanistan. He wanted to try and build up the country very quickly. But absolutely, there were people there willing to take those contracts and saw it as a major business opportunity and profited from it. And I want my audience to get a sense, Greg, that, you know, they might be hearing all this and saying, well, on what basis did the United States government spend three years arguing with the Post that these interviews conducted by the U.S. government about a taxpayer-funded war shouldn't be made public? What was their argument? Well, they didn't really have a legitimate argument as, as far as I was concerned. And but they still fought a tooth and nail. Uh, well, because, you know, frankly, and you won't be surprised by this, they didn't want the truth to come out because mm -hmm. it was going to be very embarrassing. It was going to show all these U.S. officials, uh, as well as international officials, NATO, Afghanistan, you know, admitting all the problems with this war and that they were aware of it and that they weren't telling the truth in public. So they knew this was going to cause a ruckus, that this was going to be controversial and they didn't want to do it. And frankly, as you well know, the government is very good at stonewalling reporters. Uh, and, you know, you have to persist uh, for as long as it takes sometimes. And it took us three years. Not many news organizations have the resources or time to do that. Uh, you know, eventually we won. 
But, you know, the war was dragging on this whole time. And if people had known about this years ago, maybe things would have turned out differently. And I want to ask you, Craig, based on what you just said about the applicability and importantly, the non-applicability of Saigon, Vietnam, comparisons, metaphorical enlargements of Afghanistan. You know, that it's not just Saigon. It's just it's like you said, comparisons to Vietnam and the war there. And that's something you see in these these interviews with people who thought they were confidential. So they were being more frank, to be honest, and they would if they were speaking for public for uh, public attribution. But uh, there's a lot of this undercurrent. Were we making the same mistakes in Vietnam? And I think in the early years, there was such a knee jerk reaction saying, no, 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 we won't make those mistakes again. We're smarter than that. We learn from Vietnam. President Bush said this as soon as the war was started. He told the American people in press conferences from, from the White House saying, we learned our lesson from Vietnam. We're not going to send all these conventional troops to Afghanistan and get stuck in this quagmire. We're not going to do it. And yet they still did over time. That's exactly what happened. Uh, so you can see American officials sort of struggling with this as the war goes on. They're seeing Vietnam uh, reminders writ large. They can see those, those nightmares come up, uh, but they're struggling with it. They, they wanted to avoid it, but they couldn't get they couldn't avoid getting pulled into the same outcome. One thing about Afghanistan and Iraq is that because the U.S. force is voluntary and much, much smaller than it was in Vietnam, the accountability is slower, if non-existent. Maybe that's too harsh, but it seems to me in the ballpark. Uh, absolutely. The other difference, not just was there not a draft for Afghanistan and Iraq, but as you well know, Major, people signed up for duty after September 11th. People thought it was their patriotic duty to defend their country. And there, there was a real rush to enlist uh, in the armed forces. People thought it was important to go to Afghanistan to defend the United States. It's you know, very different from Vietnam. Uh, so there, there was a small group of Americans who served their time and again, they thought it was important, but even they over time, I think a lot of veterans who served in Afghanistan have grown disillusioned because that wasn't what they originally signed up for. And they've sort of wondered how did we lose track of what we were hoping to accomplish there? So I think that is a difference from Vietnam. You know, there, there's parallels, there's differences. I, I think the obvious parallel is here's two countries we didn't understand very well on the other side of the world. And yet we went in trying to sort of transform their political systems. And, you know, that wasn't why we originally went to Afghanistan, but that's what we ended up trying to do. And frankly, the outcome was the same. The outcome was nearly the same for sure. And we're still seeing it playing out in the capital city of Kabul right now. We are recording this on Checking My Watch on the date, August 19th. Folks, this show is going to run throughout the weekend, and we don't know what events are or are not going to play out in the coming days leading through this weekend. Craig hopes, I hope, everyone in Washington, everyone in America hopes this evacuation proceeds smoothly. We're going to talk more about whether or not that is or isn't possible in segment four. Craig Whitlock of The Washington Post, author of The Afghanistan Papers, is our special guest. Segment four of The Takeout coming up in just one second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. 
CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. Craig Whitlock of The Washington Post, author of the Afghanistan Papers, is our special guest. So there's lots of technical and sometimes anodyne language right now this week about a dynamic threat environment and throughput of evacuees. Let's just get to the crux of the matter. Kabul in Afghanistan is a dangerous and uncertain place right now in which thousands of Americans are trying to flee. A larger number in the thousands of Afghans, interpreters and others who assisted the United States government are also trying to leave. And they don't know if they can get from where they are in the capital city of Kabul to the airport. And once they get to the airport, if they'll be allowed to go through to get on an airplane. And the checkpoints are not manned by the United States government or our NATO allies. They're now manned by the Taliban. So, Craig Whitlock, I want to ask you, what are you fearful of in the coming days? Hostage situations, a plane being shot out of the sky, a ruckus at the airport that explodes into gunfire, or other things? All of those things. Uh, look, it's a very unstable situation, uh, to say the least. All of a sudden, you know, Kabul, which had been uh, under military control of the U.S. government and the Afghan government for the better part of 20 years. When you go around Kabul, Kabul is very different from the rest of Afghanistan. Kabul is where the seat of power was. Uh, you know, there's roadblocks, checkpoints, blast walls, you name it throughout Kabul. Then in just the space of a few days, all of a sudden the Taliban comes, you know, roaring in on their on their trucks and their motorbikes while the Afghan government essentially vanishes uh, at that point, the U.S. military had had withdrawn completely, save for a few hundred troops there to guard the embassy. So you have this, this power vacuum that the Taliban rushed in to fill. Now, all of a sudden, we send back 5,000 U.S. troops trying to evacuate our people, our citizens, our diplomatic staff, and thousands and thousands of other Afghans who had tried to help us while the Taliban has controlled the city. I mean, I can't think of another parallel to this in, in recent history. It's just a very unstable situation. Uh, fortunately, there hasn't been you know, widespread firefights or, or, or conflict in Kabul. It, it sort of you know, defies uh, the logic here because the Taliban, you know, they've come in and the leadership has made a decision where they didn't want to fight the Americans. They didn't want to give the Americans a reason to re-engage in the war. And I think they've been holding to that. But, you know, the question is, to what degree does the Taliban have control over all its own fighters? This was a decentralized guerrilla force. Uh, this doesn't, this is not an army with the command and control that the United States has. So all it takes is one guy to start firing his AK-47, hit the wrong people, or, you know, let's say they kill an American soldier, an American diplomat, you know, then who knows what will happen. Things could go south very quickly. Or, uh, so far, it's been tense, but right. it's been going well. Or, and this is what I worry about, one guy with a shoulder-launched stinger or similar type weapon and a plane lifting off that runway. You know, th th there's all sorts of nightmare scenarios. And, uh, you know, not just, you know, an active shootdown, but let's say there's an accident. I mean, we saw how close things came. Those images of the USC-17 trying to take off with you know, these crowd of Afghan guys running down next to it, trying to clamber on board. I mean, as, as shocking as that was, it, it could have turned out worse. What if that plane crashed somehow? Or, you know, it just, there's all sorts of scenarios that are, that are scary, and we just hope they don't come to pass. So 
Uh, Craig, you've no doubt noticed there has been a conversation within the veterans community, particularly in the last week and a half. And to put it simply, it sort of falls into the category of, was it all worth it? And that's not the conversation that's never occurred before. As you mentioned before we went to break, some veterans were already becoming disillusioned. I have friends who served in Afghanistan who've been wondering for years, what are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish? And there's two ways, I think, to look at that. One is it's ending much worse than we imagined, but maybe that 20 years wasn't for nothing anyway because... At the first Taliban press conference, there were hard questions asked by Afghans, some of them from women, and some women are in the streets of Kabul knowing that by not wearing the full dress, they are making themselves targets, and they're beginning to push back a little bit. Do you think there's anything about this 20-year experience that may leave a residue of resistance to the Taliban? You know, that's that's an open question. I think there is a residue of resistance right now, but how deep that is... Uh, how what form that may take and you know how long that'll last is anybody's guess. Right now, the Taliban knows that the eyes of the world are upon Kabul and how they're handling things. You know the fact that they had a press conference and they let a woman ask questions of them in an interview. Uh, you know they're trying to project a different image because they want international recognition and they want humanitarian aid to keep flowing in. But what happens when the cameras aren't there anymore? What's happening in other places or behind closed doors or in other cities where there's no international presence? You know, we just don't know. We don't have we were very limited uh, view into what's going on in Afghanistan now. And I think over time, that's going to be the test. Is the Taliban really going to open up? I'm kind of skeptical. I don't think they've changed their ideology or their their you know very conservative uh, faith. But, you know, We'll see. How are they going to rule? The the amazing thing to think about is the Taliban now is more powerful than they were before 2001. Uh, They control the entirety of Afghanistan, whereas prior to 2001, they they controlled most of it, but not all. They have all these U.S. paid for weapons and ammunition that uh, were flipped over by the Afghan army. So they're in a position of strength that they're not accustomed to. What are they going to do with it? You know, we just don't know. And in the two minutes we have remaining in this segment, Craig, I want, and you can't explain all of this, but explain some of the things about the Taliban that has made them persistent and over time successful. One component part of the Afghanistan papers is they were less corrupt and viewed as more godly than the other Afghans, particularly in the government. Yeah, you see this time and again in the interviews and the documents that uh, ordinary Afghans, you know, Americans would ask them, you know, why are you siding with the Taliban? And you know, there was one Marine advisor in, in Afghanistan during the Obama years. He, he asked this of some local tribal elders. The elders would complain about the Taliban. And he'd say, well, why, why don't you rise up against them? And the elders would say, look, we know you Americans are going to leave sooner or later. And they also said, you know, the Taliban are men of faith. We don't like the way they do it, but you know, they're Muslim. You're not. The other thing is you point out, you know, Afghan people really soured on the Afghan government. They saw it as corrupt, not in their interest. And while they, many Afghans really don't like the Taliban and are scared of them, they saw the Afghan government as the lesser of two evils. And real quick, because this is an important part, there was an election that was contested. Hamid Karzai might have stole that election, yet the United States sided with him anyway. That had to have a residual effect. Not just that election, the next two presidential elections with Karzai's successor, Ashraf Ghani, uh, none of those elections were seen as free or fair. And, you know, that's sort of the irony here. The United States tried to create democracy in Afghanistan. And at first it looked like it was going to work. When Karzai was elected in 2004, it was seen as legitimate. 
But ever since then, the electoral process has, has gone downhill. And Afghans now just, they don't believe in democracy that way. They don't see elections as, as it's something they aspire to. They see it as a cause of their problems. That is the voice of Craig Whitlock, our special guest. The book coming out August 31st, a very important date. It's called The Afghanistan Papers. It's been a phenomenal conversation for our radio audience. We need to say farewell. But for those on CBSN and on our podcast platforms, please stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Craig Whitlock of The Washington Post is our special guest, author of the forthcoming book, available August 31st, The Afghanistan Papers. It is by far the biggest story nationally and internationally this week, and we're diving as deeply into it as we can. Now, this is the fun and game segment, Craig, so we're going to lighten it up in just a couple of minutes. But before we do, and it's not your point place, and it's not this show's place to tell Afghanistan veterans of our country that their service is valid, but I want to give you a chance to offer your thoughts for those veterans in my audience who might be wondering or hearing this and saying, did I do something worthwhile? Well, I'm going to give you a a positive answer, but also a pessimistic one. So let me go with positive first. I think, you know, the American people uh, really respect the job uh, that their service members did in Afghanistan and diplomats too, you know, that people really did this for the right reason. They served in Afghanistan at a time when their country needed them to and when their governments asked them to. And you know, it's clear that people put their shoulder to the wheel under really trying circumstances to try and protect the United States, but also to help Afghanistan, to try and build up you know, a stable functioning country. And there's no question you know, our troops and our, our diplomats tried to do that job and did a good job of it as best they could. Uh, but it is difficult to see the result now politically and militarily with the Taliban taking over to ask that question of, you know, was it worth it? You know, there is one interview in the Afghanistan papers with uh, General Doug Luke. He was the war czar under both Bush and Obama in the White House. So he was overseeing the war from the White House, uh, helping the war commanders. And in this interview, he brings up this question. He says, you know, 2,400 lives lost. He's talking about U.S. service members being killed in Afghanistan, 2,400 lives lost. Who will say it was all in vain? And he left that as an open question. But Major, you'll understand this, I think, just to have the idea that a a U.S. Army general would question whether lives were lost in vain, that's a really serious statement by him, just because normally our service members are always reassured that their sacrifices are worth it. And yet here's a three-star saying, you know, I don't know that it was worth it. That's a tough one, I think, for a lot of people to, to swallow. Tough indeed. So, Craig, this is the lighter part of our conversation. We do this every single episode because our audience loves the answers. So I've got three questions for you. Asked of everybody who's ever been on my show. Most influential book in your life? One of your all-time favorite movies or your favorite movie? And if you're going to really enjoy some music for a long flight or a long drive, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Oh, Major, you, you should have given me a heads up on this stuff. Uh, you know, I'm not very exciting on these fronts. You know, one of my favorite books of all time is Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain. Uh, you know, it's an old book from the 19th century, but it's it's really funny. And I was a foreign correspondent in Europe for many years. And, you know, he summed up a lot of the European cultures really well and in a very humorous way. So 
you know, that's one of my favorite books. It's, a it's an absolute great read. I love it. Read it in college. Uh, movies, uh, you know, that's, I, I, I'm a Washington Post reporter, so I have to say All the President's Men yes. about Watergate. You know, it's a classic movie, but it, it's, a, it's a news uh, movie, a newspaper movie. You know, that, that, of course, prompted a lot of people in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s to become journalists. Yep. Uh, and the director, Alan J. Pakula, was told by a producer in Hollywood, what are you making a political movie for? He goes, I'm not making a political movie. I'm making a detective story. That's right. And it was a great it is a great movie. People should still watch it today. Absolutely. It, it, it tells you a lot about our business. And what and was music. the last one? Music. What, what kind of music do you like? I like classical music. And, you know, I know this sounds boring, but Beethoven and Bach and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it calms me down after a, a crazy day at work. Well, we could all use some calming music after crazy days at work, whether we're at home or at the office itself. Craig Whitlock of the Washington Post. Again, the book is called The Afghanistan Papers. And I want to say this again to our audience. This was published in the Washington Post first in December of 2019, and it didn't get nearly enough attention. And that's part of the short attention span, not only of the Washington journalistic culture, but our country writ large. It should have then. It would have told us and did well in advance, tell us what we would likely face now and why it wasn't more thoroughly absorbed by the Biden White House is kind of a mystery to me. Craig Whitlock, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. It was, it was enjoyable. Appreciate we'll it. See, we'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.